James chapter 5. James chapter 5 this morning. James chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. As you're turning there this morning, I want to ask you this question. What if I told you this morning that in the possession of each of you in this room is one of the most deadly, dangerous, and destructive things known to exist in the world? Right now, in your pockets, in your possession, you have one of the most dangerous and destructive things that there is in the world. It's not a disease, it's not cancer, it's not some type of thing that you can uh, catch or pass to one another, but it's money. Money, one of the most dangerous and destructive things that exist in this world. We all have it in our possession. And this morning we find here in the book of James, James issuing a stern and severe warning on the misuse of money and riches. Many commentators point out that as, that as strongly worded as many of James's statements have been in this book, that here we get to the point where he is the most stern and strict and challenging to those to whom he writes. Because James understands the power of money, the destructive nature of those things, and he wants to warn them, he wants to challenge them to understand how they must have their mind on the truth, how they must have their mind on what is right and how to handle those things in a right way. Again, James chapter 5, if you found your way there, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. James writes, and he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are come upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which have been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Seboth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. You can be seated. James opens this section of the text really with just a warning to the wealthy. He, he wants them to understand the dangers of possessions, the dangers of money, and how if we're not careful in the way that we steward and use those things, we can find ourselves not just opposed of God, but far from Him. James uses those same words there as he did in verse 13 of chapter 4, come now. It's a word of, of awareness. It's a word of listening. He's basically saying, listen up, pay attention, pay careful attention to what I'm about to say. He had used this when he was addressing those in the previous chapter who made their plans and lived their life with no consideration of God's purposes. And he again uses it here to call attention to another warning, one again that he speaks more strongly than before. Now, as we discussed last time when we talked about those who were making plans and going to a city to make a profit, James here is not condemning the idea of careful business thought. He's not condemning the idea of making money. 
He's not even condemning the idea of, of amassing wealth or having those things. What he is condemning is the great danger that exists to those who possess wealth and do not understand how to biblically and to God-honoringly steward that wealth. James has here in mind, as you will understand as we look through these chapters, those who have amassed great wealth and did it through various ill-gotten ways and then lived their life in such a way as to demonstrate that they had no true, real change of heart when it come to understanding who God was. Which then begs the question, who is James speaking to here? Now, he doesn't give a name. He just says, come now, you rich. He's, he's speaking to a group of people. He's speaking to individuals, varied as they were. Remember, this letter was to be written and to scatter to the, to the 12 churches who were scattered abroad. So he's writing this to those who are inside of these churches. Commentators have disagreed on who James is writing to. Some thought that perhaps maybe he's writing to uh, Jewish individuals who were businessmen but were outside the church. Uh, but as other commentators pointed out, it doesn't make sense because James would not have expected those people to be reading this letter. This letter was written to those who were inside of these churches, inside of these Christian communities. But as we looked at a few weeks ago, James here is most likely addressing those who were inside of these Christian communities who professed to be followers of Jesus Christ. They claimed the name of Christ. They claimed uh, possession or ownership inside the church, membership inside the church, but the evidence of their lives demonstrated that they had never truly been converted. This is one of those things that we find even challenging in our own day. There are many people who assume that because they belong to the membership of such and such a church, that because they prayed a prayer when they were in vacation Bible school 40 or 50 years ago, that that's all that it takes right? I, I have my name on the church roll somewhere. I prayed a prayer when I was young. I, I go to church on the appropriate days that you're supposed to go to church. But then there is no evidence in their life of that conversion. They have no desire to fellowship with the people of God. They have no desire to attend church on a regular basis, no desire to read the Bible, no desire to pray. If you look at the way that they conduct their business and their life, there is nothing about the way they conduct their business that looks anywhere close to what the Scripture says one who is a Christian is supposed to do. And so James, as he has watched what's happening, he is seeing some of this take place. That inside of these churches, there were individuals, there were these men who had amassed great amounts of wealth, but as James looked at them and he said, well, how are they stewarding that wealth? How did they gain that wealth? How did they do all of these things? James suddenly and very sternly realized that what they had done was so far from what it means to be a Christian that he issues this warning to them. He issues this warning with a hope and with a prayer that they might come to see the danger of their life and come to true faith. James here is not doing this just to build up his own power or to make him feel better. He wants them to understand that by their own life, by their own testimony, they are demonstrating that they are far from God. And he wants them to be saved. He wants them to turn. He wants them to come and to actually possess the thing that they claim to possess. And brothers and sisters, we will see many people like this in our own lives who have a stern head knowledge of what it means to be a Christian, but no heart change. And those are perhaps some of the most difficult people to reach when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Those who are outside and far from God and know they're far from God, they might not like what you have to say, but they're not going to argue the fact that they're far from God. They know it. They understand it. They live their lives in, in common acceptance of the fact that they have no desire or no personal relationship with Christ. But it's those who have convinced themselves that they are believers that are the most difficult to reach. And the reason that James here speaks so sternly with them is because oftentimes that's what it takes. You have to be stern, not in a mean way, not in a judgmental way, but in a very clear scriptural way to be stern with those who are far from God, who think they're Christians, that they may see the truth of the scriptures. Notice to what James says here in this verse. He says, come now, listen up, pay attention, you rich. It's very clear who he's speaking to here. He's speaking to those who have amassed great amounts of wealth. But notice what he says to them to do. Right, you might think here, James is, uh, is writing to the churches. You might think that you write to him and say the first thing that he would say is, you know, the first thing you need to do is make sure you're giving a certain amount of money to the church. But James is not concerned with that. James is not concerned with how much money they're giving to the church because the first thing that James sees that they need to do before they give any money to the church, I'm sure that many of these men might have done that. But the first thing that he tells them to do, he says, is to weep and to howl. Now, those aren't words we typically use very often in common. You know, we typically use the word cry. But weep means to, to do more than to wail, more than to cry. It's almost this idea of shrieking. It's a word that was used for those who were professional mourners. In the day in which Jesus and James lived, when a loved one would die, you would hire professional mourners to come in. And it was their job to just come in along with the family and just to shriek and to cry and to make as much noise as possible. Now, it seems kind of foolish to us today. We, we don't understand why that is, but it was this way of demonstrating sorrow and mourning over the loss of a loved one. And, and the louder that you could shriek and the louder that you could cry and wail, the better you were doing, the better job that you were doing. So these people were very skilled at weeping and mourning and crying. And this is the word that James uses here. He says, you need to be in mourning. You need to be crying out. And why? He says, because the miseries which are coming upon you. But notice he doesn't just use the word weep here. He uses the word howl. And that word howl is the idea of a frantic terror of somebody who judgment has come upon. It's someone who realizes that judgment is coming. And it's that cry of realizing that you're getting ready to get what you deserve. One commentator said, we might well say that the word which is described here is the word that describes those who are undergoing the torture of the damned. If you could describe a word, what people in hell are doing right now, it's the word that James uses here for how. He's being very clear. Sorrow, weeping, howling. This is what you should be doing. Now, you think about the rich man, right? The rich man, most typically, doesn't even consider these types of things. Why? Because they have enough money to solve any problem that they want to solve. When something goes wrong, they just pay somebody enough money and the problem goes away. 
When difficulties happen, they have enough money to make sure that their difficulties aren't difficulties anymore. But James says, no, he says, you need to understand that your attitude not needs, does not need to be pride and arrogance and satisfaction. Your attitude needs to be weeping and howling, crying out, shrieking, a terror. It should be coming upon you. Why, James says, because your miseries, which are getting ready to come upon you. Destruction is coming to the rich man. You know, we're taught from an early age hopefully not by our parents, but we're taught by the world, that money equals happiness. You want to be happier? Just have more money. You want to be more successful? Just obtain more money. Everything you need can be satisfied by having more money. It's why so many people in this world live their lives, the entirety of their lives, in pursuit of the gaining of more money. It's why people will sacrifice along the way their family, their spouses, their children, their friends, their reputation in order to obtain more money. Because they think that in the end, the more money they amass, the happier they're going to be. In the end, they discover that they've been sold a bill of goods. Remember what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6? But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. I think probably every one of us in this room could think of an individual that we have known who have sacrificed the entirety of their life in the pursuit of money and in the end come unwanting. It's why you see so many celebrities who by the world's standards should be the most satisfied people in the world. They have money, they have houses, they have cars, they have fame, they have success. But so many of them die of drug overdoses, are in rehab and out of rehab, into rehab, out of rehab. Why? Because money does not equal happiness. Money does not equal contentment. And so for these men... James is giving this stern warning to speak of a terror that is to come. They think that they've established their lives in such a way that they have nothing to worry about in the future, nothing to fear. Remember the passage we read in Luke last week, Jesus' parable of the rich man who says, I have so much, I'll tear down these barns and build bigger barns so that I can just say to myself, self, just be happy. Sit back, eat, drink, and be merry. Everything is taken care of. I have nothing to worry about. But James says, oh, you have much to worry about. Because of the way that you've lived your life, because of the way that you've done this, you have much to worry about. He says, the miseries which are coming upon you. They may have lived a life of luxury, but doom and torment awaited them in the end and in the next life. Remember, Jesus also told another parable about a rich man and Lazarus. 
There was a rich man, and he was habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus, that he may dip the finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received the good things, and likewise Lazarus the bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And this was the exact picture that James is painting towards those who were rich, but weren't living their lives in submission to God, weren't living their lives in obedience to God. James is saying to them, you've lived your life in luxury and in in plenty and in all that you want. He said, but what's coming for you is now just destruction and judgment and agony. It's a stern warning that he offers here. Now, the question would be, well, what are these people doing? What are these wealthy individuals doing that have caused James to issue such a stern warning towards them? What comes to how they have obtained their wealth and how they have used their wealth. I want you to notice in verses 2 that there is a wealth that is hoarded. A wealth that is hoarded. Now, we all know what a hoarder is. There was a fairly successful television show that covered that for many, many years. People were just astonished by the fact that there were people whose houses were just filled with various objects. Sometimes they would go into these shows and these houses would just be filled with just junk, right, from floor to ceiling, as far as you could see. Sometimes it would be even worse than that. You would go in and it was basically just trash in every room from floor to ceiling and the person could barely fit their way through. Saw one where it was books from floor to ceiling. I don't know if that's really a problem. I don't know that that's really considered an issue, but not. But people amassed all these great things, all these items that to them were important, right? They, they, they de- developed and they desired satisfaction from them. And what James is pointing out here in verse 2 is that these individuals were the very same way. But what they were hoarding was items of wealth. Look at what he says in verses 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up treasure. So why was James condemning the storing away of wealth? It wasn't so much so that they were amassing the wealth. The fact was that they were amassing this wealth and refusing to use it even when people were in need. We understand from the teaching of the Bible, especially in the book of Acts, that one of the things that as Christians that we do is that we help one another. And that certain times there are people that God has blessed with with amounts of resources and money that he does that so that they can use those resources in order to help others around them. Whether that's to help the church, whether that's to help the gospel go to the nations, or whether that may be to help a brother or sister in Christ who finds themselves in need. God does that. And over my, uh, the course of my life, I have known several individuals who do this. They have, by business success and by God's blessing, have amassed great amounts of wealth, and they use that wealth and steward it for the kingdom of God. James here is not condemning those individuals. 
James here is condemning those individuals who store away all this wealth so much so and refuse to use it so that all of it is actually going to fall into ruin before it can ever actually be used. Now, your question might be, well, how could wealth be ruined? Well, because we measure wealth in different standards today than it would have been in James's day. In James's day, wealth was typically characterized by three different areas. One was food. That's why that parable that Jesus told about the rich man was talking about storing up food. There weren't grocery stores on every corner. There were times of, of very good uh, harvests and then times of famine. And so if you were wealthy, you've stored up vast amounts of food to prepare yourself for those moments. So one of the ways by which wealth was judged was how much food you had stored up. And if you had great amounts, you were considered as a wealthy man. The second one was garments. So the different items of clothing that you had. Now, in James's day, fashion didn't change as quickly as it does today. You can buy a clothing item today, and three months from now, it's out of style, and the world tells you you have to go buy something else. In James's day, it wasn't that way. The style of clothing stayed pretty much the same. But for those who were rich, they had these luxurious garments made of very fine linen, oftentimes embroidered or maybe have jewels on them. It was actually said in my study, I found that there was one, uh, a Greek man who, when they were starting to do the plays there in Greece, they came to him and asked if they could borrow a hundred garments to have for the theater. And he told them, I have over 5,000 in my closet. Feel free to take any or all that you want. So this man had over 5,000 garments in his closet. Why? Because it was a way to measure wealth. Thirdly, was gold and silver and precious jewels. Now, those things are still for today. Those are still things that are worth money in, in our world. But no one in James's day was trading stock options or putting cash into a 401k. You were only measuring wealth by food items, garments, and gold or silver. And that's why James addresses each of those three areas in this condemnation of their hoarding of their wealth. These men had amassed such wealth, and because of it, they refused to help others. And notice what he says. He says, first, he says, your riches have rotted. There he's speaking of the food items. He says, you've stored up all this food, so much more than you would ever need, and because you refuse to give it to others, it's all just going to sit there and rot and decay and fall into ruin before you ever use it. Now think about that. It's such a sinful thing, right, to have the resources above and beyond what you need to be able to help others, and you refuse to do it merely because it would take away from what you have. This is the condemnation that James is issuing. He says, it's not going to hurt you. You've got plenty. You've got more than enough. But because you're so prideful, because you're so arrogant, because your heart is not in the right place, that there inside the church, there are those who are hungry. There in your community, there are those who are hungry, and you refuse to give to them, even though all it's going to do is just sit there and rot and decay. And James is issuing a warning. This is exactly what's going to happen. All these things that you've amassed are going to fall into destruction. You think you're storing up for tomorrow, but all of your food is going to rot away. And he said, your garments have become moth-eaten. Again, it's clear what James is saying. You have all of these clothes, all these items of garments to wear, but far more than you could ever 
use. I mean, how many garments do you really need? Do you need 5,000? I think you'd have to change clothes several times a day in order to wear all of those in a single year. But James is saying the same thing. There are those who are in need. There are those around you, he says, and because you've amassed so much and because you refuse to use it, James is offering a warning. Not only is your food going to rot and all of that will be destroyed, an element of your riches will go away. He said, also your garments are going to become moth-eaten and they'll be worthless. Nobody wants to wear a piece of clothing that's filled with moth holes. And then he says, verse three, your gold and silver have rusted. Now, on the first glance, you might say, if, if you know anything about gold and silver, you say, well, gold and silver doesn't rust. And yes, I understand, but James here is not talking about the idea of rust, but gold and silver will tarnish over time. And the picture he's trying to paint here is that over time, because it's so not used, it just begins to, it begins to, to not to decay, but it begins to become tarnished. And it's this idea of it's no, really no good anymore because you're not using it. It's this idea of, of decaying away because of its lack of use. So all three areas that these individuals would have stored up these vast amounts of wealth, James is saying in the end, it's all going to be destroyed. It's all going to go away. But notice he continues in verse 3. He says, And their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up treasure. He's offering a stern warning here to those who would hoard up their money. He's saying the, the corruption of those items, the tarnish on the gold and the silver, is a witness against you in the day of judgment. Because you had the ability, you had the resources, and you didn't use them. And so James is saying, God is going to hold you accountable for that. He's going to say, what did you do with what I gave you? Brothers and sisters, that's a question that God will ask every single one of us. Not all of us in this room are exorbitantly wealthy, but God has given each one of us things to steward in this life, whether it's our money, our time, our talents, our resources. All of us have something that God has given to us to use for the furtherance of the gospel and his kingdom. And the question is, is what are you doing with it? And these individuals could not say to God, well, God, I just didn't know there was a need or God, I didn't have enough because all James is saying is God, all he has to do is to look and say, well, there it is. There's that rusty gold and silver. There's those moth-eaten garments. There's that rotted food that bears witness against whatever they might try to say to defend themselves. He says it will be like a consuming fire. Basically, he's talking about that final and coming judgment. He said that witness against you, all of those items of wealth. He says you've stored them up not for your last days. You've stored them up because you thought you would have them for the rest of your life. But basically, they have stored them up as judgment against themselves for the last days. So James's warning here is to a wealth that was hoarded. Next, I want you to notice not just a wealth that was hoarded, but a wealth that was unjustly gained. A wealth that was unjustly gained. Look at verse 4. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. 
And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. It wasn't just smooth business savvy that had led these individuals to amass great wealth. They were also willing to do whatever was necessary to obtain more, even if it meant defrauding others of what was rightfully theirs. What was happening here, what James is criticizing them for, was that these individuals were hiring laborers to come and to work in their fields. Day laboring was a common practice in those days. We've seen it in many parables of Jesus. A man would seek out individuals for that day's work. When the time of harvest would come in, he would go down and say, okay, I need 10 men to come and work the fields today. And they would agree on a price and they would go out, they would work the fields. And at the end of the day, that individual would pay them for their day's work. These rich men now where what they were doing was at the end of the day, they were keeping back either a portion or all of that, which they had agreed to pay to these individuals. He says, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. So they were hiring people, promising to pay them money, and at the end of the day, coming up with some type of excuse of why they ultimately didn't have to pay, right? Well, you know, I told you to cut the grass at at an inch and you cut it at an inch and a half. Well, you missed one little section uh, over there by the far edge of the field. You took too long on your lunch break, so I'm not going to pay you for the entire day. Whatever it may have been, they were coming up with all of these excuses. But what they would have understood, being Jewish individuals, is that any of these types of practices were severely condemned by God all the way through the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 19, you shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. Deuteronomy 24, you shall give him his wages on the day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it so that he will not cry against you to the Lord and it becomes sin in you. Proverbs, 20, Proverbs 3, 27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it to you when you have it with you. Why was this so important? It was so important because these individuals who are working these fields, that was pointed out here in the Old Testament, the reason why the Lord said, give it to him on the day before the sun sets. Do not say come back tomorrow was because most of these individuals depended on what they made that day so that they could feed their family that night. The reason they worked all day and were paid in the evening was so they could take that money, go to the market, buy food, go home, buy the dinner for the night, and buy the meals for the part of the next day until they could make more money the next evening. So James is saying when you withhold that, you're going to cause them to cry out against you. And in fact, they've already been doing that. And that was the warning that God gave in Deuteronomy chapter 24. He says, you shall give him his wages on the day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he will not cry against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin in you. And what does James say here? He says, those who have been withheld, their pay has been withheld, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord. Guy King, who has become one of my favorite commentators over the last several months, he said this, he says, you can cheat the laborers, but you can't cheat the Lord. The Lord knows what's happening. 
And even though they thought they were getting away with cheating these individuals and taking their money, as they cried out to God, you know, the scripture tells us in very many places that the Lord hears the cry of the oppressed and his heart is pulled to the cry of the oppressed. God has heard them, James says. He has listened. And not only does God hear them, but God is going to bring revengeance and justice as well. God is our defender. God is our one who hears our cries when we are wickedly oppressed. And so James offers a warning. He says, you have gained your wealth in an unjust way. You have cheated those. You have frauded those individuals. And you've thought you've gotten away with it. They're poor. What, what, what response do they have? What can they do? Right? They can't do anything but just cry out to God and say, God, would you do something about it? And James is very clear saying, you thought that you had been successful. And all the wealth that you'd obtained by defrauding individuals, you think nobody else knows about, nobody else can do anything about it, but God is going to do something about it. It was not just a wealth that was hoarded, not just a wealth that was unjustly gained, but he also says it was a wealth that was used selfishly. Look at verse 5. He says, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fatted your hearts in a day of slaughter. They've lived luxuriously in wanton pleasure. It's, it's two different terms that speak to the idea of just living however they wanted to and then living a life of sinful pleasure. These individuals had never heard the word no. Whatever they wanted, they had. Everything that they did was spent in the pursuit of sin and self. We've looked around, we see individuals like this. People who just live however they want to live because they have enough money to do it. And James here offers this condemnation. He says, this is how you've done. You've taken all this that you've amassed so wickedly. You've hoarded it all. You've gained it unjustly. He said, and not only that, he said, you've even stepped your wickedness up to the point that you've taken all that you've stolen from others and now you use it to pursue a life of self-pleasure for yourself. But notice what James says. He says, you've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Ultimately, they're going to come to realize that all these things that they had done were of no good for them. Everything that they thought that would provide for them to the end ultimately brings judgment upon them. The pleasures of this life, their hedonistic pursuit of self, had fattened their hearts. The word that James uses here, the picture he's trying to paint, is of a, an animal. We'll use a pig, for example, that's being fattened for the day of slaughter. You ever thought about a pig? It's just there in the mire all day. It's as happy and content as it can be. And in the pig's mind, he has no idea why this generous farmer every day brings out all of this wonderful food for him to enjoy. He doesn't even think about it. It's just there every day and he gobbles up every bit of it as much as he can. And he gets fatter and fatter and he thinks this is just the greatest thing in the world. This man is just so generous to me. I'm just going to be as happy as I can be. I'm going to wallow in the mud. I'm going to eat as to my contentment. 
But then one day the farmer comes and he doesn't come with a bucket of slop. He comes with a knife. And he comes to slaughter the pig. And all of that satisfaction, all of that self-enjoyment is all over in a minute. The farmer was doing one thing. He was fattening up the pig for the slaughter. And James says this is exactly what these men were doing. All of this life of luxury, all of this pursuit of self, he says all you're doing is fattening yourself up for the day of judgment, for the day of slaughter. He says, you think that your life is just going to be everything that you want it to be. He says, unknowingly, what you're doing, he says, you are fattening yourself up so that when the day of judgment comes, the slaughter is just going to be that much more grand because you've just continued to fatten yourself up. Notice the last thing James points out here. Not just that it was a wealth that was hoarded, not just unjustly gained, not just used selfishly, but it was a wealth that was also used wickedly. Look at verse 6. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Not only were these wealthy individuals defrauding their workers, not only were they unwilling to help the less fortunate around them, choosing only to hoard it, not only were they just spending it lavishly on themselves, but their selfishness transformed into pure wickedness as they pursued and killed the righteous man. In the pursuit of more ill-gotten gain, they were using the court system to get more and more. No doubt, drumming up some type of foolish charges against individuals. And most scholars believe that what was happening here was they had some kind of connection with the court systems. Because God was very clear in the Old Testament about that court systems and judges were there for the betterment of the righteous, to reward those who did good and to punish those who did evil. But as we know that any type of system in which man is involved can be corrupted. And so it's believed that what was happening here was that these men were so wealthy that they had paid off or had a connection on the inside to some of these judges so that when they would bring charges against a poor man or bring charges against what James here declines as a righteous man, that they knew that what was going to happen was that these individuals were going to be put to death and that that rich man could then obtain whatever this man had and amass it to his wealth as well. All against the righteous man, James says. And to quote Guy King again, he says, righteous man... These are men who are thoroughly decent and true and upright and whose only crime is that they stand in the way of their tormentors. James is very clearly pointing out to these individuals, he says, not only have you demonstrated that you're not truly converted because you will not help others, not only have you demonstrated that you're not truly converted because you have cheated others to gain your wealth, not only have you demonstrated you're not truly converted because you are living life in just pursuit of selfish means, he says, finally, he said, his most vehemently demonstrated that you're not truly converted, he said, because you're killing other people, other good people, righteous people, in order to continue to grow your wealth. He could not be any clearer. He could not be any stronger in his condemnation. But now there's an interesting thing there at the end of verse 6. 
He says, you put to death a righteous man. He does not resist you. Why does the righteous man, this one who has done nothing wrong, not resist the tormentor? Not resist the one who's coming against him? Commentators have offered a couple of thoughts on this. One was that they just couldn't stand against the political power. That because they had so much money and wealth, there was just nothing that they could do. But I think the greater answer for this is something that then also ties back into everything else that James has stated in this passage. And the reason that the righteous man did not resist was because he did so in identification with Christ who resisted not. First Peter chapter 2. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 5. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him also the other. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. James here is describing the true character of the Christian life in comparison with the character and life of those who profess Christ but have no true knowledge of Him. James says, look at the difference. He says, you come against the true righteous man who loves the Lord, who's truly converted, and he does not resist you because he understands the life of the Christian and what Christ had demonstrated in his own life. He says, now compare that with what you have done. And it's very clear to see who truly knows Christ. I want to close with Paul again in his words to Timothy. Because again, this is not a condemnation of all wealth. It's a condemnation and an instruction to those who have wealth to steward it well for the kingdom of God. And Paul said this, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. It's not a sin to be rich. It's a sin to be rich and pursue self. It's a sin to be rich and to hoard it and to not share with others. It's a sin to be rich and to not seek to do good with it for the kingdom of God. May God grant us the ability to do well with what He has given us. Now, you may be sitting there this morning and you think, well, I'm, I'm out of this because I'm not wealthy. Right? I don't have a large bank account. I don't have a lot of money. Really, brothers and sisters, wealth is not determined so much about how big your bank account is. I remember one preacher telling me one time that you don't have to have a lot of money to be generous. He says you have to be generous to be generous. Right? It's all about an attitude of the heart. 
not about how big our bank account is. It's all about the attitude of our mind. And in fact, if we're to judge everyone in this room this morning, if every one of you had your bank statements on you, and you compare what you have compared to the rest of the world, all of us in this room are exorbitantly wealthy. But what matters is not how much it is, but how well we steward it for the kingdom of God. And that God will bless us in the end for that. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, what a challenging word. This world that we live in tells us that the pursuit of money and wealth is all about our own personal satisfaction and what will ultimately lead to happiness. But Lord, we know that your word tells us that pursuit of money will lead to nothing but destruction and devastation. And that true happiness lies in obedience to you. And Lord, I would pray that if perhaps any of us in this room are ever at a place where by your providential blessing you choose to allow us to be stewards of great amounts of money, that we'll remember James's warning here and to steward that well. To remember that it's not about doing what we can for ourselves, but about doing what we can for the kingdom of God. Because all of these things in this life, houses, cars, food, garments, gold, silver, are all going to be destroyed and, and vanished. Nothing left. But anything, Lord, that we do for the good of the kingdom will reap eternal benefits and rewards. From the smallest thing that we do for your kingdom, Lord, it will never be forgotten. It will never be erased. It will never return void. So, Lord, may we have in our mind that true wealth comes, Lord, through the work of the gospel and seeking you in how we steward what you have given to us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.